Today we're up to Luke chapter 12, so I'd love you to get your Bibles out uh, so you can follow along. Now I just want to say something right up front before we get started. Uh, The passage we're looking at today, it has some really hard teaching from Jesus. We're going to be looking at hypocrisy, the reality of death, eternal judgment, hell, the fear of the Lord, and an unforgivable sin. But we're not going to skip these verses, even though they're really hard. We believe that they are God's Word to us, and today we must humble ourselves before His Word. We must receive it, we must put it into practice, because, because it's true. God's Word is true, and it is for our good. So I know I need God's help before we begin. I know each of us do. Uh, so let's come before Him and ask for His help as we look at Luke chapter 12. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you have spoken to us clearly through your word. And we ask this morning that you would give us hearts to receive your word. That you'd remove all distractions, that you'd give us ears to hear and, and hearts that are willing to put it into practice. We ask that you would change our hearts this morning, that you would help us to overcome the fear of man that is within us so that we may stand firm for Christ through whatever trials come our way. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at Luke chapter 12. So if you grab your Bibles out and we'll read that together. Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Luke 12 from verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples first, Beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have said in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men... The Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is God's Word. Let us hear it and put it into practice today. So last week, uh, as Matt was preaching to us from Luke 11, we, we saw Jesus rebuke the religious guys, the Pharisees and the lawyers, because of their hypocrisy. And the Pharisees were really insulted by Jesus. They were enraged and now they want to get him back. They're trying to trip him up and catch him out, and they're hunting him down, trying to stop him. So 
So right at the start of this passage, we saw that thousands of people are now crowding in on Jesus to hear him preach. But Jesus doesn't speak to the crowds. He speaks directly to his disciples. Now, you might think that after the conflict that he's had with the Pharisees, that Jesus might be warning his disciples to watch their backs. The Pharisees are coming to get us. We've got to lay low and be on guard. But Jesus knows that there's something far more dangerous than being arrested or killed or imprisoned. Jesus isn't worried about their safety. What's he worried about? That their lives would be compromised. The danger that Jesus warns his disciples about is hypocrisy. In verse 1, take a look. He says, Beware of the leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, this metaphor would have been really familiar to Jesus' disciples. They didn't have baker's delight in the, in the ancient world. Everyone had to bake their own bread, and they knew that you just put in a tiny bit of yeast in, and it would spread through the whole dough and make the bread rise. Jesus is saying that just like yeast, hypocrisy might seem like a really small thing in your life, but it's going to work its way the whole way through, and it's going to ruin everything. The word hypocrite, it comes from ancient Greek theatre. Actors in ancient Greek theatre, they would perform using masks. And so they would wear a mask and then they would change masks for each different character. So a hypocrite is literally someone who wears a mask, who pretends to be someone that they're not. A hypocrite is an actor. So Jesus goes on to say in the very next few verses that one of the biggest marks of hypocrisy is deception. It's being one person on the outside and hiding what's really on the inside. And this is exactly what we looked at last week, where Jesus rebuked the Pharisees saying, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup, but on the inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Now I know that one of the biggest objections that non-Christians have against the church is that it's full of hypocrites. We say we believe one thing, but then you look at our lives and we act in a completely different way. And I just want to address that objection, uh, and I want to say three things to that. So first, not everyone who claims to be a Christian really is. And Jesus says this himself in Matthew 7, 21. He says that not everyone who cries out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the Father's will. So you might think of the rapper who goes up on stage at the Grammys to receive an award and in his acceptance speech he thanks God but then you look at the lyrics of his songs and what's he singing about? He's singing about violence and rape and drug use. You don't really need to look very hard to see inconsistencies, to see that their life doesn't match up to what God really wants. Second thing to say is that some Christians are hypocrites. And again, you don't need to look very hard to find signs of hypocrisy in the church, from the royal commission into child abuse from the, to the moral failure of church leaders, Christians who take shortcuts at work or rip people off or gossip or use pornography or ignore the needs of the poor or live in any other kind of sin. Christians, we're meant to represent Jesus to a watching world and sadly too often we've failed to show what he's really like by the way that we live. The reality is that Christians can be jerks, but that doesn't make Jesus a jerk. Jesus hated hypocrisy. He hated it. He rebuked the Pharisees for it, and now he's warning his disciples about it. So we too must beware 
of hypocrisy in our own lives because Jesus hates it. And the third thing to say is that the definition of a Christian isn't a hypocrite. A a Christian is actually someone who admits that they're a sinner. Now, you can usually spot a hypocrite because they're the ones who claim to have it all together, to be without sin, and then they go around judging everyone else while they've got pride in their own hearts. You want to know how to spot a Christian? They're the ones who put their hand up and freely admit that they don't have it all together, that they struggle with sin and they desperately need a saviour. A Christian is someone who admits that they're a sinner. Now, admitting sin, for most of us, we're ashamed of sin, aren't we? And our tendency is to cover it up, to hide it. We think that as long as no one finds out what we do, that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if I cut this corner or take this bribe or speak behind this person's back or fudge this paperwork or commit sexual sin. If no one knows about it, it didn't happen. It doesn't matter. But take a look at what Jesus says in verse 2. Jesus says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. This is a scary verse, isn't it? Our secret sins that we try and hide and cover up, they're going to be exposed. Now, you can't hide anything from God. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what you did last night. He knows those things that you did years ago that you've tried to bury and forget about. No matter how hard we try and cover it up to put on a good show, to fool even those closest to us, we will be exposed before God on Judgment Day. He will judge each one of us based on what we have done. It's like one of those x-ray machines, one of those x-ray lamps on CSI. You walk into the room and everything looks spotless. And then as soon as you put the lamp over it, it shows up the filth everywhere. Our lives will go under that lamp. It might look spotless on the outside, but our sin will be exposed. Now, some of you might be listening to this and your hearts are burning within you. You know you have secret sin and you're terrified that someone's going to find out. But there is good news for us today in the gospel. God already knows. God already knows what you're struggling with. It's not a surprise for him. Your sin is the very reason he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, to take that sin off your shoulders and put it on him. Through faith in Jesus, we can be forgiven of our sins. We can have freedom and a new start to live for him. So if Jesus is warning his disciples about hypocrisy, and if that's where your outward life doesn't match what's really on the inside, then what Jesus wants for us is the opposite of hypocrisy. He wants us to be the same the whole way down, the same on the outside as on the inside, that what we say matches what we do, that what we do matches who we are, that we don't have a secret life hidden away in the dark, but that we're living in the light. Jesus doesn't want hypocrisy. He wants integrity. And this is exactly the life that Jesus lived for us because we couldn't live live it for ourselves. He came and lived totally consistent all the way down. 
He made no compromises. He had no hidden sin. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father even to the point of death on a cross for our hypocrisy. Jesus wants us to be honest about our sin, not to cover it up, but to acknowledge the true state of our hearts, how black and broken they really are, and to come to him for forgiveness and cleansing. Jesus wants to give you a new heart so that you can begin to live a whole new life that's the same the whole way down. For Christians, what Jesus wants is for our confession that he is Lord to impact our whole lives. Just like, just like the yeast works through the dough in a bad way and it ruins absolutely everything, Jesus works in your life the whole way through. You can't have hidden areas from God, areas that are off limits to Jesus. Following Jesus changes and impacts every corner of your life. Now, this is one of, one of the reasons why it's so vital for us to share our lives in community. We're so prone to hypocrisy, but community exposes us. It exposes our sin. We need each other to see our blind spots, to see our hypocrisy, to point out the areas of our lives that don't match up to what we believe. So let me encourage you to keep sharing your life deeply with your gospel community. Our gospel community should be safe places where those masks come down and they're put away. We don't need to pretend anymore with one another. We can be totally real. So don't hide your struggles from your gospel community family. Bring them into the light so that we can continue together applying the gospel to our hearts and seeing transformation from the inside out. So that's where we start today, hypocrisy. That's Jesus' warning to his disciples. And he knows that there is a very real stage upon which they're going to be tested. Take a look down at verse 11, down towards the bottom of the passage we're looking at. Jesus says to his disciples, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus knows like just, that just like he is going to be brought before the religious leaders, that he's going to be put on trial, arrested and crucified, he knows that's going to happen for his disciples as well, that they're going to be brought on trial for their very lives because of their allegiance to him. So how will they respond in that moment of trial? Will they live consistently and maintain their confession that Jesus is Lord or are they going to hide and deny that they even know him. Now I want to point something out in verse 11. Jesus doesn't say, if they put you on trial, what does he say? He says, when they bring you before the synagogues. When they put you on trial. Jesus knows that opposition is certain. Now this is a specific warning for Jesus' first followers in the first century facing Jewish opposition, but... The reality is that you look through history and opposition to Jesus has continued in every single generation since then and it continues today. Being a Christian will not make you popular with the mainstream culture. Being a Christian will not give you a comfortable lifestyle. In fact, it's often quite the opposite and it always has been. Just like we looked at a few, a few weeks ago, being a Christian is a life of self-denial, service, sacrifice, submission, and does anyone remember the last one? 
suffering. Being a Christian may bring trials into your life. But it's that trial that actually exposes what's in the heart. It strips away any mask that you might be wearing and exposes what's really on the inside. It shows whether you really believe the gospel, whether you really trust in Jesus, or whether you were just playing as a Christian hypocrite, putting on a mask, trying to win the approval of man. Now, Jesus knows that for his disciples to be prepared for this moment of trial, he's got to do more than just warn them of the dangers of hypocrisy. He's got to deal with the heart. He's got to deal with the heart motivation that causes hypocrisy to prepare them to stand firm. So what is it? What is that heart motivation that causes hypocrisy? Well, he goes on to tell us in verse 4. He says that it's the fear of man. Fear of man is the heart motivation that causes hypocrisy. It's a universal issue that affects every single one of us, regardless of culture, context, or what century we lived in. Our deepest worry is what others think of us. And so what do we do? We put on a mask. We change our outward behavior, our outward appearance to try and earn the respect and approval of our friends or our family, our peers or colleagues. Now, this was a problem in Jesus' day, and it's certainly a problem for us today. In the face of opposition, this heart issue of fear of man, it's going to lead to hypocrisy. We won't live consistently with who we really are as Christians because we're more afraid of what others think of us or what others might do to us. So how do we overcome it? How can we possibly overcome the fear of man? How can we stand firm for Christ in the face of trials? Well, there are four things that I think Jesus is saying to his disciples in these verses that I think are relevant for us as well. He says that we overcome the fear of man with an eternal perspective, with the fear of God, with the love of God, and with the help of the Holy Spirit. They're the four points that we're going to work through. We overcome the fear of man with an eternal perspective, with the fear of God, with the love of God, and with the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, before we work through those four points, I just want to say that each of them, they're not asking us to do something different. What they're doing is they're asking us to change the way that we think. They're trying to arm us with spiritual truths that we need to remember every day as we walk out onto the battlefield facing trials. So as we're going through these things, I don't want you to write a to-do list. Oh, these are the things that I need to do this week. What I want you to do is to write a to-think list, a list of things that you need to remind yourself of every day as you're going out to represent Jesus to the world. So let's get started. Number one. We overcome the fear of man with an eternal perspective. Take a look at verse 4. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, hell is not popular today, is it? Heaven and hell, they're mythical places, right? That's the stuff of children's fairy tales. Who believes in that anymore? Anyone teaching about hell? Well, they're trying to manipulate you using fear. 
Now, everyone in our city, they love Jesus, don't they? Jesus is a good guy. He's a great teacher. But it comes as a bit of a surprise to realise that Jesus speaks about hell more often than anyone else in all the Bible. And in these verses, Jesus has something really important for us to hear. And so you might think that hell is ridiculous, but I want us to follow his logic here. So let's just, for argument's sake, to understand what Jesus is saying, let's just assume that hell is real and try and understand the logic of what Jesus is trying to say here. Now, for most of us, death is our greatest fear. Even this week, we look at the tragedy and shock of Phil Hughes's sudden death. And we're gobsmacked by it. This is a young man in the prime of his life with his best years of cricket ahead of him. And we think, what a tragedy. What could be worse than having your life cut short? Well, if hell is real, what is worse than death, according to Jesus? It's not being prepared for what's on the other side. Now, Francis Chan is a pastor in the US, and he uses a really helpful illustration uh, to help us understand having an eternal perspective. And I've just got to give a shout out to Nigel over here for putting me onto this one. Um, so, Francis Chan runs a rope the whole way across the stage. And he says, Imagine that this rope goes on forever. And that it's a timeline of your eternal significance, of your eternal existence, sorry. Now, on this rope that runs on, to, on forever, there is a tiny part of it that's coloured in red. And that red part of the rope represents our time on earth, our life on earth. In the context of eternity, it's, it's tiny. Now, for most of us, we work really, really hard in this part of the rope to really enjoy this tiny part of the rope right at the end. And Francis picks up the rope and he's like, what about the rest of the rope? We focus on this tiny part, the red part, but what about the rest of eternity? The Bible teaches that what we do in that red part of the rope, it actually determines how we will spend eternity, heaven or hell. So if you're making decisions now that are jeopardising your eternal destiny, then you've got it all the wrong way around. We need to let our eternal destiny shape the decisions that we make in this tiny little red part of the rope. Now, in the context of the fear of man, let me paraphrase something that Jesus says in Mark 8. What good is it then to keep all your friends in this little red part of the rope? What good is it then to not upset anyone in this red part of the rope, but to lose your soul? We need to have the realities of eternity in our hearts and minds every day. We need to remember that life is short. Death is sudden and certain for every single one of us in this room. Heaven and hell are real. Eternity is long. When we have this eternal perspective, it will, it will refocus our priorities, it will refocus our decisions, and it will reshape our mission as a church. Every single thing that we do in this tiny little red part of the rope, every single minute of every single day, 
will be seeking to live to please our Lord and our God. We will not fear man, for what's the worst that he can do? He can but kill us. He can do nothing more. And that is not the end. That is the beginning of eternity. But God, God has authority to cast you into hell because of your sin. And if hell is real, as Jesus says it is, surely the only loving thing that we can do as a church in response to its reality is to tell our city of God's amazing love and kindness in providing a saviour to rescue us from hell, to take away God's wrath, to deal with our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be made right with God and so that we can enjoy eternal life. Now, you might think that the notion of hell is ridiculous, that death really is the end for all of us. But let me ask you this. Are you really willing to bet your eternal future against Jesus, the one who claimed to be God, the only one who died and came back from death to tell us what's on the other side, what awaits us? We overcome the fear of man with an eternal perspective. Number two, we overcome the fear of man with the fear of God. So fear of man is the problem that causes hypocrisy. Fear of God is the solution. Now you might think, I thought God was meant to be loving and kind and forgiving. Why why would I be afraid of God? Well, God... He is a loving Father. He's full of mercy and full of grace. He sent His Son, Jesus, to save us. But God is not just a mate that we can be casual with. The Bible says that He is holy. He is mighty. He is glorious. He is so big and great that the universe cannot contain Him. Whenever anyone comes face to face with God in the Scriptures, what do they do? They fall down before him. They take their shoes off because they're on holy ground. They are terrified. It's kind of like a close encounter with lightning. Now, you see lightning land near you, and it's amazing and exhilarating, and it gets your heart racing, and it's so beautiful and glorious, but then you realize that that lightning is really powerful, and that if it didn't land there but landed here, It would have killed you. You get the same feeling when you're standing on a cliff in the Blue Mountains. You look out over the valley and it's so vast and incredibly beautiful and it's so spectacular, but you realize that one step in the wrong direction, that's all it takes, and you will plunge to your death. And this is the same with God. The Bible says that He is so glorious. He is so holy. He is so majestic. He is so beautiful. But you also know that this very same God is the one that you have rebelled against, that you have rejected in your sin, that He is righteous and powerful and that He has authority to judge you. He has authority to cast you into hell. And so when you appreciate this, 
the only right response is to fall down before him in awestruck fear. This is our God. He is so big. He is so glorious. He is so amazing. Compare him to that person that you struggle with, with the fear of man, that person that you are afraid of, that person that shapes your decisions and your priorities, that you're trying to earn the respect and approval of. It might be your boss or your girlfriend or your dad. Compare that, that tiny little person to our God. They are so small and insignificant, aren't they? To use some of the Bible's language, they're just like a breath. They're a flower that fades. They're like the grass that withers. They're like a mist that disappears. How could we fear a flower? How could we fear the grass? How could we fear about a tiny little person when we fear our God? God is to be feared above all men. Now you might think, how can a negative emotion like fear, how can that produce a positive result? Because that's what we want, right? This is about overcoming fear. How can fear produce a positive result? Well, you might remember that movie, 127 Hours. Has anyone seen that? So it follows the true story of Aaron Ralston, who was out canyoning in Utah, and he fell down a canyon, and he got his arm stuck between a boulder and the canyon wall, and he was stuck out there for days. He was calling out for help, and no one came. He was out there for days, and he knew that he was in a desperate situation facing his death. And so what did he do? We all know what he did. He cut his arm off so that he could free himself. Now, Aaron was faced in that situation with two competing fears. There was, on the one hand, no pun intended, there was on the one hand, <laughs> there was on the one hand the fear of cutting his arm off. Like, who seriously wants to do that? No, like, that's a horror movie stuff, right? No one wants to do that. But on the other hand, there was the greater fear, wasn't there? There was the greater fear of death. And that greater fear of death overcame his lesser fear of cutting his arm off because he wanted to live. And it's the same for, for us as Christians when we go on trial. It's scary. It's real fear that we face. But when we understand the fear of God, when we understand the reality of eternity, our greater fear of God enables us to overcome our lesser fear of man, even if that means for us going through suffering. So we overcome the fear of man with the fear of God, keeping God in his rightful place in our mind and in our heart as king over all the world. Number three, we overcome the fear of man with the love of God. Take a look at verse 6. Jesus says, Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. 
fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. So Jesus is saying here that sparrows are cheap. They're really inexpensive when you go down to buy them in the marketplace. If you compare that to a cow, if you went and bought a cow in the first century marketplace and it died, well, that's a big deal. Like, that's a significant financial loss for your family. But if a sparrow died, you just chuck it on the rubbish heap. Go down to the shops and get another one for two bucks. They're cheap. No one cared about sparrows. But Jesus is saying that God cares for the sparrows. Even though they're tiny, even though they're so insignificant, God knows them and cares for them intimately. He provides for all their needs. In Matthew 10, 29, Jesus says, Not even one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father's care. Now, if God is so intimately concerned and involved in even the tiniest, the tiniest, most insignificant parts of his creation, how much more is he concerned for us? The pinnacle and climax of his creative work. How much more does God love you? How much more will he provide for all your needs and protect you in all the dangers that you are facing if he provides even for the sparrows? Jesus goes on to say in verse 7, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows even the smallest details about us. He knew us and chose us before we even existed. Before the creation of the world, you were in God's heart. You are his treasure. You are his prize. You are so precious. You are so valuable to God. He knows you intimately from your hidden sins to the very number of hairs on your head. So if God, our loving Heavenly Father, if he knows us so intimately, if he cares for us so completely, if he sent his own son to shed his blood to save us, if God is so totally in control of all that happens in this world, if he's so totally in control of even your life, how can we fear man? How can we not cast ourselves into the loving arms of our Heavenly Father? In all these verses, even though Jesus is speaking about really, really hard stuff, he's talking about the realities of hell, eternal judgment and death, Jesus' main goal in these verses is to comfort and reassure his friends. Look at how he addresses them in verse 4. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear. Those whom Christ has for his friends need not be afraid of any enemies. Those whom Christ has for his friends need not be afraid of any enemies. So we overcome the fear of man with an eternal perspective, with the fear of God, with the love of God. And finally, we overcome the fear of man with the help of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 11 again. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. What an amazing promise. 
from Jesus. I can only imagine that Peter recalled this promise when he was brought before the religious leaders in Acts 4 because he'd been preaching about Jesus. Acts 4 says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and so he responded with boldness and courage when he was brought on trial. The Holy Spirit gave him words to defend himself when he was put on testing, in his hour of testing. So for you, if you are put on trial for being a Christian, it might not be in the courtroom like Peter, maybe it's in the office or in front of your friends or family. Don't trust in your own wisdom or power or or strength. Trust in this amazing promise from our Lord Jesus that He will help you in your hour of need, that the Holy Spirit who is within you will give you the words that you need to say in that hour. Now, these instructions to trust the Holy Spirit, they come with a promise and a warning in verses 8 and 9. The promise in verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. And then the warning in verse 9. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. When I was in year 10, I was getting a lift home from soccer training with my coach. And he asked me, so all this churchy stuff, like I know Ian, this other guy in my team, like he goes to church, he goes to youth group, you're at school with him. Like, do you believe all that stuff as well? Like, is that for you? My moment of trial. How would I respond No, 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 that's not for me. I put on a mask. I caved in to the fear of man. I cared more about what my soccer mates thought of me than what God thought of me. I denied Christ with my words. I thought that if they knew that I was a Christian, they'd think that I was a loser. Now take a look at what Jesus says in verse 10. The one who speaks a word against the Son of Man, he will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. So what's the difference between those two? Speaking a word against Jesus or blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Well, a word spoken against Christ, that is a moment of failure under trial. Just like Peter He denied Christ when Jesus was arrested and imprisoned and crucified, just like I denied Christ when I was in year 10. A moment of failure, Jesus promises, can be forgiven. It's still serious, but it can be forgiven if you turn back to God in repentance and faith. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's not about one moment of failure. It's not about any words that you might say in any moment. It is a total rejection of God with your whole life. Instead of turning back to God, you are still running away from Him. If you never turn back to God, you can never be forgiven. Now, lots of Christians struggle with this idea of an unforgivable sin. Have I committed this? Can I ever be forgiven? Is there any hope for me? Now, I want to to assure you that if you're asking that question that's probably a sign that you're in no danger of this committing 
of committing this sin. Your heart is wanting to turn back to God. There's repentance and faith in your heart. You desire to receive His grace. It's the one who stubbornly continues in rebellion, the one who continues to run away from God. That's the one who ought to shudder at the prospect of unforgiveness. Now, maybe for you today, you've been convicted that you've been running this way. You've been running as fast as you can away from God. And you've heard about the eternal reality of hell, the certainty of death, the prospect of unforgiveness. Maybe today, the Holy Spirit has been convicting your heart and your desire today is to turn around, to turn back to God. If that's you, then we would love to pray with you. We would love you to, re- put your, to lead you to receive, re- receive Christ and put your faith in Him, to receive forgiveness from your sins. And there'll be an opportunity to do that during our worship set at the end. So we've heard four things. We overcome the fear of man with an eternal perspective, with the fear of God, with the love of God, and with the help of the Holy Spirit. And I think the challenge of this passage really is for us to go public as Christians, not to hide away, but to go public, to live consistently on the outside with what's on the inside when we face trials, to maintain our confession in the workplace, in front of our friends and family, that Jesus is Lord over our lives, instead of putting on a mask and hiding and denying that we even know him. So this week, when you're on trial for Christ, how will you respond? Will you crumble and give in to the fear of man, compromising your life to try and please your friends? Or will you daily arm yourselves in your minds with these truths, keeping them right at the front of your minds so that you can be bold and so that you can confess what you believe? Now, in gospel communities over the last few weeks, we've been talking about our summer of mission. How summer gives us amazing opportunities for mission in our city. People have more time off from work. They have more energy. They're more relaxed. There's daylight savings and people are just more open to hanging out. And our gospel communities, we're already planning some amazing ways to be on mission. I've heard of people organizing New Year's Eve parties. People planning to go down to the beach to hand out water and sunscreen. People going caroling in their local community, handing out gift bags for the homeless free gift wrapping at Glebe Markets, and so much more. There's so many amazing ideas, and I can't wait to see how God uses us this summer. But I wanted to ask us a question as we prepare for this summer of mission together. As we're hanging out with our non-Christian friends, as we're serving our local communities, are we just going to hang out with them? Are we just going to do something nice? Or will we take the opportunity to tell them about the amazing love and kindness of our God in sending Jesus, the Saviour of the world? What better time is there to speak up than at Christmas when we remember the light coming into the darkness to bring hope to the world? So what might it look like for us as a church to overcome our fear of man this summer and speak up boldly for Christ? Will you be prayerfully dependent on God to give you opportunities to share Jesus this summer? Will you depend on the Spirit's empowering presence within you to give you the words to say? Will you invite your friends to Christmas Eve, to our gathering on the 24th of December, 
so that they can hear the gospel? Will you commit to being on mission together as a gospel community rather than flying solo this summer? Spending time together and inviting your friends into that. Will you arm yourselves with these truths that we've looked at today to overcome the fear of man and take the opportunities that God will give you this summer? Now, we all need God's help in this. I I know that I need God's help in this. And so we come now to a time of response and reflection, a time to admit our failures and weaknesses and remember Jesus' death, which is the foundation for our faith, which is the foundation for the forgiveness that we have. His death to deal with our sin. During this time of worship, we invite you to come forward to our communion stations, either side of the stage. As we take the bread and dip it into the, into the juice, we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. So as we eat together, let us receive it with thanksgiving. Let us be thankful to God for his abundant grace and generosity and for the new life that we have in him.